Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast. Today, with one of my favorite topics, entrepreneurship in life science. Always when I hear the terms uh, entrepreneurship or business, I think about the story that um, I got taught by one of my teachers at the university back in the 90s before the... Um, the dot-com bubble burst. It was a story about uh, people who started digging for gold. And uh, long story short, it's basically when you want uh, to participate in a gold rush, then you can do two things. On the one hand, you can dig for gold uh, with a very limited likelihood of finding something, or you join the parties who sell the shovels basically, with a likelihood of uh, making good money over time. And this is what I think it was back in 1969, 19, uh, 1869 and 1870s in California, in the United States. This is what uh, Liebe Strauss did, um, the famous jean manufacturing company. Uh, he basically just sold pants and the company still exists. And I think many of the mining companies that existed back then um about 150 years later, um, are not in existence anymore. The first gold rush that I experienced in my uh, business career was the dot-com bubble. Uh, I think many of the gold diggers don't exist anymore, but infrastructure companies like um, consider Apple also from this part uh, still are operation, operational and in business. And last year, when the pandemic started, uh, Personally, I moved in 2006 into life science and um, one remarkable thing happened uh, before 2020. Um, I would say very few number of people I know in my environment were interested in the pharmaceutical industry. So basically the discussions ended quite quickly when uh, they asked me, what are you doing professionally? I said, okay, I support companies in developing drugs. Um, conversation was over development of drugs. Yeah, okay, yeah, fine. Uh, but uh, there was not no interest whatsoever. And also when you opened the newspapers, um, I didn't read anything about uh, drug development or that a company brought a new drug to the market uh, outside the pharmaceutical industry. So in the, in the yellow press, there was nothing. Now, um, the first time that I got the information that Merck was approved in a country in Asia on the market with a therapeutics against COVID-19 was basically from Facebook, from social media. Uh, an acquaintance who is not in the pharma industry just posted it and uh, got directly slammed in my face. And this development, I think, is so interesting uh, that I'm very happy today that I can welcome to this podcast episode one of the entrepreneurs in uh, Germany who has uh, two decades of experience in developing uh, drugs from uh, scratch. And I want to discuss with him how he did it, uh, which kind of company he formed, if he joined the parties of Digging for Gold or uh, the other parties or both, and about cultural differences between founding companies and starting companies and running companies in Asia and in Europe. Welcome to the show, Dimitrios Tsalis. I hope I spell your name right. <laughs> Correct. Thank you, Christian, for having me over at this podcast. And I hope to help you shine a little bit of light in the field of drug discovery and uh, 
to tell you where we stand, if we are the Levi Strauss or if we are the, <laughs> the gold diggers. <laughs> yeah, so sorry for that, uh, for that introduction. I'm, uh, anytime when I talk about entrepreneurship, this, this old story from the university pops up in my mind and I really like it because it uh, describes in clear words what, what possibilities any industry offers to people who want to found companies. Um, let's start with the first question. What is your background? Well, I'm a chemist uh, by training. I'm a PhD chemist. I started my studies in Germany, in Marburg, and I went in an exchange program to the US and I majored in uh, chemistry and biology. So I got a master's in chemistry and biology. And then I shifted to the University of Chicago and UCSD, that's University of California, San Diego, where I finished my PhD. So I have a PhD in organic chemistry. And after my PhD, I shifted back to Germany to do a postdoc on the, again, uh, Marburg University, where I started my studies. And uh, a year later, after my postdoc, I basically started uh, Taros as a service provider in 1999. It was a typical university spin-out, or for those times, it was an untypical approach. Yeah, I believe in 1999, it was, uh, I think, the the time when the uh, dot-com bubble really took off. So with tremendous uh, uptake on the stock market and every company who had an internet strategy somewhere posted on their website, uh, went public, got, en got enough money. What motivated you in those days when I think, maybe it's just my perception here from, from Austria that everybody was talking about the internet uh, to start a company in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, when I left the US, especially when I left San Diego, um, there was a big boom ongoing, again, 10 years ahead of, of the European market in biotechnology. What today represents Boston uh, 20 years ago used to be UCSD. So we had many biotech startup companies and uh, that were founded there in a very rapid time they grew. And um, when I came back to Germany, there was basically very little in the field of biotechnology people started talking about was on the onset and the companies that were on the market they were all focusing on technology platforms or screening uh, platforms and uh, nobody was thinking that yes when i do some tests after that i will need a potential drug that uh, constitutes a chemical compound that is active or that does something in that uh, protein that I identified. And that's how the idea came about. And that's how I got motivated. So the motivation really came from my uh, experience that I had in the US where entrepreneurship even 20 years ago in biotechnology was common, whereas in, in, in Germany or in Europe in general, back then it was... Uh, It was really very much on the onset. Very few companies existed back then. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think uh, the 90s, the, the narrative that I heard also at the university level is, was not uh, like colleagues from the United States said, uh, start your studies and ideally before you complete your master's degree, you found your first company. And uh, if that doesn't work, you found the next one. And in Austria, it was more um, finish your master's degree 
if you want, you can do a PhD, but ideally you find a job in a big corporation that is safe and you uh, walk up the career ladder. What uh, made you um, uh, to decide? Was there an initial event? Was there a clear event where you said, okay, I'm not interested to, uh, to start in a big corporation because I think your idea could also have been easily brought into a company like Beringer or similar? Well, when I uh, finished uh, my PhD, I had the option either to go into academia or join the industry. Mm. Uh, when I was in UCSD, I, I knew I wanted to come back to Europe for various reasons. And when I came back to Europe, it became to me very clear that uh, uh, there are, in my opinion, tremendous opportunities in setting something up. At the same time, there was a crisis for organic chemists. It was very difficult at that time to land a job because most of the big companies had a hiring freeze uh, at that time. So that's how the idea came up to uh, start forming a network here. In During the time that I had my, my postdoc, I talked to a lot of people. And as I said, inspired from the, from the uh, experience that I had in the US where I saw many people being extremely successful I, I took the initiative to start the company. Yeah, I think this was the, uh, the 90s was the time when uh, Gilead um, became famous and created, uh, I think, great one of the companies who created great success. Um, I think Amgen, wasn't Amgen also? Yes, Genentech, Amgen was Genentech. all at that time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah Kleiner Perkins, I think, and uh, Andresen Horowitz uh, made good money with that companies. I'm curious, when I look... Uh, at the startup scene today in 2021, um, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, I think it didn't change much. Uh, we have a lot of uh, incubation programs. We have a lot of acceleration programs. We have, even in Europe, meanwhile, we have a lot of seed funds and um, Series A funds. And especially once the companies are listed, it's easy to find money, either from banks or from later stage funds. How was the situation in the 90s when you set out to start a company did you have anything of that none of it none of the above a uh, i i had written a business plan i uh, sent it to some people people didn't understand the idea mm -hmm. uh, or they said we are not interested in services my initial idea or the The initial setup of Taros was basically that we were a service provider for mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry or biotechs And um, so as naive as I was, I wrote a business plan and then I thought, well, some people buy a house and they take a loan. I'll, I build a company and I go to the banks and I say, can I have a loan? <laughs> What was well, the reaction? <laughs> <laughs> well, people told me, you know, Mr. Zales, if you would have opened a bakery or a hair salon, <laughs> we would give you the money. But your concept, we just don't understand. But then I got a, an LOE with one of the big uh, agrochemical companies at that time. Mm -hmm. And that guaranteed me a, a certain volume of sales, and which was not a lot. It was 50,000 euro. Mm -hmm. With that, my house bank back then gave me a loan. And that was the initial, uh, the initial starting point. So I started with a small loan and my balance was, okay, some people pay off a house, I pay off the, the company loan. And that's where, where Taros started and took off. So I was, it was in a way a lucky punch. 
but there were no instruments at that time for financing. You have to imagine the venture capital scene was basically non-existing back then. Uh, seed financing, forget it. Uh, I'm still wondering how, how I got the money back then. Just, I would say, a lucky punch 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely agree that um, in the 90s, I tried to um, start internet companies basically with ideas that are similar to Facebook. And uh, when we asked people for money, we got the same answer. Um, find a job. <laughs> so why do you want to do something? Internet, nobody needs it. And there were no instruments, no seed funds or incubation or startup programs, uh, any, any, any of that. It's good to hear that it uh, was similar uh, back in Germany. One question I have too, you said you wrote a business plan. Uh, I mean, as the environment was really empty in the 90s, uh, how did you find the, the idea that you put in, in a business plan? Where did you get your inspiration from? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. As I mentioned, since I was since I was in back then the capital of biotechnology in in in, uh, in the US, um, I had seen many examples of what the companies back there did, and I had looked into what are the biotech companies doing in Germany, and it became very clear to me mm -hmm. that all these companies one day will need chemistry in order to develop a drug. If you think, how does drug development work? You have a, some, somebody in the field of biology, molecular biologist, genes, uh, uh, genetics expert who finds a protein that does something in the body and uh, either induces a disease or can be blocked in order to, to reduce pain. And then you take um, a chemical compound and you develop it to a certain degree further in order to... Uh, facilitated to do what you wanted to do to either block the protein or maybe activate it. And, but that molecule has to have certain criteria. Uh, it shouldn't be toxic. It should be metabolizable. It should. Uh, so there are many aspects that I don't want to go into details on the podcast, but there have to be many aspects around that molecule that have to be safe and absorbable by the, by the body. Most of the companies in biotechnology came out of biology and screening. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you talk drug discovery, at the end of the day, when you want to go into drug discovery, you need a drug on the table. And I recognize that all these companies pretty soon will have a bottleneck in getting chemical companies in order to prove their, their concept. And that exactly is what happened. So I, in a way, used logic and I derived the idea from the logic. Also, being an organic chemist also helped. I was not a medicinal chemist at that time. That uh, changed over time. I, I uh, started understanding much better what the requirements are. And uh, But I developed it from the logic of 
the biology and the, will one day need chemistry in order to provide a potential drug, which will be the product that the pharmaceutical industry or biotechnology company can sell. And that's how I came about uh, with the idea. I was lucky that also besides that aspect at uh, the early 2000s, the pharmaceutical industry also started outsourcing mm -hmm. a lot of their chemistry activities. So on one hand, logic, but on the other hand, again, a little bit of, of luck that the industry started outsourcing a lot. Luck or you just were aware of the, how the situation uh, develops after your studies in the United States? This would have been my, my next question. Um, because I started in life science in 2006. And uh, when I analyzed the industry, I saw that um, up to the end of the 90s and also early in the 2000s, the European big pharma companies did everything in-house, basically. So from scratch, uh, even basic research. And then there was a slow development uh, that I think accelerated about five years ago that uh, big pharma, in my opinion, said, okay, ideally, I mean, we have big corporation, we have uh, great scientists uh, in the company, but what we can really do well uh, is bringing products to patients. So do the final mile, do the phase three study, get through the regulatory approval, and then push it on the market. Uh, did you, was it really luck or did you have uh, a lot of information from, from your studies in the United States to make the decision that it really, that the pharma industry would develop into that direction? The only indication that I had or my, my back then logic was that the biotechnology companies that would be the future pipeline of the big pharmaceutical companies would require these, um, mm. uh, these chemical compounds as potential drugs. It so happened that at the same time, a few years later, two, three years later, the pharmaceutical industry started outsourcing first the very early phase and then Uh, first, they, they outsourced the biology or the, the biotech companies picked up these ideas and then they outsourced more and more. So there was an uh, aspect of both, but the, um, that the uh, pharmaceutical industry would start outsourcing was, for example, when I did a part of my uh, questionnaire before I started mm -hmm. the company, I called quite a few companies and they already indicated that, yes, they would require the service. I Uh, set up a questionnaire uh, with, with 15 questions and one of them was, okay, if you would have the possibility to, uh, uh, to get uh, organic chemistry services, would you uh, take advantage of it? And a few companies said yes, very quickly. They were really the forerunners and some companies you could literally see they did it, but 10 years later. I mean, it is amazing how some companies are quite innovative and quick Other companies take much longer, but also these companies that outsourced, they outsourced very early to Asia. And these companies are now all coming back. So the companies that were forerunners did their experiences mm -hmm. are also coming back. So uh, quite interesting. But so it was a mix to, to answer the question. It was on one hand, the logic, but on the other hand, uh, when I did the telephone interview, finding, yes, there is a bigger need than the biotech companies. So you did also a little bit of market research. So it was uh, hard work rather than pure <laughs> luck that you just found a company. And uh, luckily, it, it's pretty amazing because um, I think until the mid 90s, the general training was uh, when we look at companies is that uh, 
companies try to make everything in-house. So it's basically scale in-house and create a big company. I mean, it was the time when Jack Welch with General Electric was famous for his acquisition strategy. I think uh, in one interview he said in, in one year they acquired more than 200 companies. So it was uh, basically integrating, integrating, integrating. And with the internet came a shift uh, towards the network economy. And I see if you find the book. Uh, it was published from a professor in Switzerland. It's the network economy. Das Netzwerkunternehmen in German, so it's uh, network companies. And this was pretty a new concept uh, when you started your company. Uh, and when I look at the life science industry now, we are living in this networked economy because early stage drug development, I think up to phase three, uh, it's really you have a small entity with a highly skilled project management team uh, that acquire two things. Uh, one is IP. And uh, on the other hand, capital to pay third parties uh, to develop drugs from uh, basic research up, I would say, proof of concept in human. Uh, but in the 90s, uh, I think uh, it was a very unusual concept to say, okay, let's uh, start with a service provider. Oh, very, very unusual. Many, many people that during uh, my market research are called, they would tell me, and even after I start, start my company, they would tell me, well, we have our own chemist. Why should we do it with you? It was a standard answer. Yeah. So at the beginning, as a service provider, it was really a, a very uh, uh, difficult approach. I mean, you have really had to, 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 to ring many bells in order to, for one door to open, especially in the bigger companies. And little by little, though, they all more or less uh, opened up to the idea because they saw the, the huge advantage that came about uh, using the, the service providers. Because as you mentioned, the big companies, they focus on their core competencies and what made them unique. And as you said, it's for their uniqueness is uh, to bring the drug to, to, the, to the patient and that they're good at and that they are fast at. And that is where their, let's say, unique selling point comes in. The earlier the research was, they start very early on, the early research to, to outsource that or to facilitate startup companies. And little by little, they started uh, giving up more and more of the drug discovery uh, pipeline to service providers or to, to, uh, to spin outs. So much so that, as you mentioned, the, the preferential model would be to insource a phase two or, if possible, even a phase three candidate which would uh, be the best case scenario for them because then they just have to go through the uh, approval process and get it into the market i mean in my i'm interested in your opinion so it's uh, now i test my opinions with your expertise uh, i mean it makes sense uh, for two reasons one reason is the mindset so when i look at the whole value chain in the industry I think uh, basic research is uh, a very creative part, which takes a lot of uh, experimenting and trying out new things. Uh, when I look at the early stage of product development, I think it makes sense to put the ideas uh, into companies because companies usually define themselves as being the place where people are doing or start doing the same thing all over again, uh, which on the downside uh changes the mindset because it uh it goes more into a structured development mindset rather than being a creative scientist and the closer we come to the market the more structured it gets uh do you share this perception or would you recommend to me to change my mind and see it differently 
No, I think I think uh, you're you're quite correct in your mindset. You have the creative part, and the creative part is not compatible with the industry approach. Apart, with it is very structured, very time bound. I cannot force you to have an idea or to solve my problem by the thirty first of March. <laughs> not possible. An academic, he might sit at the lake or might go for a walk or. Uh, might be somewhere in the mountain, have an idea and be creative and get a solution. And sometimes they have to go up the path of serendipity in order to uh, to find a, a new approach and new uh, solution. And that does not match with the approach that the industry is taking. So I think it is very important that we keep and maintain a very healthy academic approach with a lot of freedom to operate, a lot of freedom to think and not try to commercialize academia. On the other hand, you're absolutely right. The pharmaceutical industry is much better in structuring processes. I've worked in one project with them very closely together. I'll, I'll maybe address it later on the European Lead Factory. And that's where I learned how they really work in detail. They're very structured. They have very, very good approaches in order to take the drug once it has reached a certain stage and bring it to the patient. And then there are the companies like mine that are in between, the, the transitional companies. That mean we take ideas, we understand the, the approach of academia and get the ideas and shape the ideas to a degree that makes it interesting to the pharmaceutical industry in order to pick it up and then create the drugs. Because I'm, I'm, it, it is like a, a clockwork. Drug discovery is like clockwork because not like, oh, I have a protein, I have a chemical, and then I test it on, on, on the human, and then it's either uh, black or white. Basically, you have so many specialists involved in the drug discovery process, and they all have to, to run into each other like uh, a clock and uh, to, to be exact in order to create that drug. Most people, I think, underestimate the, the complexity it takes to create a drug and how many experts are involved and how many expertise have to go in there. And there the industry is excellent in structuring that and really putting a process in a very complex uh, matter to put the structure into it. Whereas academia lives of the creativity. I, I always say the creative chaos. It is necessary to, to allow it. And um, when the industry tried to enter the field of the creative chaos. I would say they failed and that's why they retreated and they gave it up. And then there are the aspects like our aspects where I say uh, you have chemistry or you have screening technologies that today have become a certain routine, which is also not the core competency where the industry earns their money. And other people optimize these processes much better than the big industry. And that's why we have now today service providers and we are working very close together with academia and the, the pharmaceutical industry. So, yes, your view is absolutely right. But uh, there is, as I said, the in-between step in order to do valorization. Because yep. academic research is absolutely necessary and they have to have their freedom. But what we have to ensure is that we take these ideas and translate them later into drugs. That the, 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 the academic partners are not very good at to understand the value to, to translate it into drugs or to bring it to a point where a pharmaceutical company is interested in it. And on the other hand, we have to create value of the ideas 
that the academic institutes create. Why is that? Because that is what gives a society the advantage. If somebody is in the field of, of molecular biology and finds a new protein that can help tomorrow patients, it is a, a moral responsibility, on my opinion, to have somebody translate it into a product and that the industry is there for. And then you have to take these ideas and these mechanisms are the new mechanisms that we have put in place. That means take an idea from academia, translate it into a potential uh, drug for the patient or into a new technology that might help measure something. And this is, I think, absolutely necessary. So um, academic freedom, yes, but also tools to valorize it. Because on the other hand, we're creating drugs we help the patients, we create jobs, we create revenues, we create taxes. And it is the taxes, on the other hand, that pay the academic freedom. So it's a cycle that one is responsible for the other. So academic freedom in the vacuum, for the sake of academic freedom, is one thing. But I think there is also responsibility on that side to translate the wisdom and not to let it disappear in the... Um, uh, in the drawer, as they used to say in the past, or in Germany, there is a saying to leave something in the drawer. Um, there is a great point that you made that it would expand a little bit further. Um, since cryptocurrencies exist, I heard uh, the term trilemma, and I think we also have a trilemma to solve in drug discovery and drug development. Um, it's this trans translational research because, uh, I mean, when you look at pharma, you have clear structured processes, it's one mindset, then you have the Second problem uh, of the trilemma that uh, the academic environment is very creative and the translators need to have both. So they need to understand both and need the ability to talk with both sides. And then to make it really a trilemma, I think we have the third problem, the monetary aspect, um, that the whole thing needs to be financed. And um, I think it was, let me just think it was 10, 10 years ago that I discussed with uh, a decision maker in the pharmaceutical industry and just put it very bluntly on the table and said, I mean, look, uh, you make decent revenues and profits. I know that uh, uh, from, from your annual and quarterly reports. Why don't you just buy the ideas from uh, academia and set up companies yourself? Uh, you have billions, you make billions. So this would be an easy job for you. And the person brought uh, forth a very interesting argument that I would like to discuss with you and hear your opinion on that. He said, look, uh, it's also not only a game of possibilities, it's also a game of numbers. When I would start buying ideas from academia, um, at the early stages, uh, you can do a lot with 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 euros or a few million. Um, the problem is of big pharma, they have to allocate billions. So the argument, uh, the point he brought forth was uh, just imagine when I have to allocate 1 billion and I would start seed funding companies uh, that need just the first million to get started it would create an unmanageable uh, um, portfolio of companies where I am not in touch with the founders that just get the money. And uh, just think about the motivation. I mean, when you are a company amongst hundreds um, and get zero attention, how motivating would it be when you work at something? And when you look at the seed funds, they very often manage uh, small portfolios of 10, 20 million. And... Uh, 
the attention they get and access to the network is much better and much bigger with uh, smaller funds than the farm industry stepping directly into that. Um, is there still some truth in, uh, in 2021 in that or uh, do you see it differently? Um, I think there's still a truth to that because I think what we needed when the translation came, we needed uh, different structures. In the past, as, as you described, there were the big pharmaceutical companies in academia. And uh, an academic um, is not driven by money. He's driven by recognition, by innovation, by, by other, they have other triggers. The industry is triggered by revenues, by money, per definition. And sometimes there was a discourse there. So now then you all of a sudden, you, you want to create a company and this company has to allocate billions. And you're absolutely right. And all of a sudden, they go from very, very big numbers to managing a company uh, of a million or not one company, but thousand companies. So what happened over the last few years, we created structures where everybody was looking at their level to manage. That means even if a pharmaceutical company has a billion, what will they do today? They put it in a, in a, in a venture fund. And the venture fund, depending on the size, will either put it in smaller venture funds or they will give it into companies that have, let's say, a need of 50 million or 100 million uh, capital. Mm -hmm. And this goes down the ladder so that we have a management structure that we developed over the last 20 years with venture capital companies that are in the seed financing, early stage A, stage B companies, or venture capital companies that invest in companies that are in stage A, stage B. So I think today it applies with the only difference that today there is a structure in place where people can invest into companies just indirectly. So that means today these companies will invest but they will invest in, in, in investment vehicles that take over the management down the ladder. Because, uh, as, as, and I can understand that fully, if you uh, deal with, with big numbers, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to understand the need or the pressure of a small company. An entrepreneur has other challenges, other numbers. And in order to work economically, you always have to stay more or less in your range. I cannot have... Uh, a million dollar company and have 10 million or 20 million at my disposal because uh, then I feel overwhelmed and, and uh, to manage that money. And I think this is the, the infrastructure that we have today in place. And that's what we see. And what happens very often when a company has a maturity, a venture capital company A invests in a seed financing round. Once it has reached a certain maturity, what we see very often a venture capital B that is dealing with bigger sums buys the shares from the uh, uh, from from the company that was in the seed financing round and so on goes up the ladder. So that infrastructure today is in place. That was a dilemma, but I think today the dilemma has been solved. It was a dilemma in the past, but I think today we have an infrastructure where people can invest. I couldn't agree more to that. I think uh, the infrastructure also in Europe that we have today is amazing compared to 1999. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, I think what you, what you mentioned is um, the portfolio theory that is still um, valid today that um, every manager who gets uh, some amount of money 
beat a billion or 10 million to allocate in company operates with the idea in mind to put it in 10 to 20 companies. So yes. I think to, to, to really have a possibility to manage that and promote the company and be a cheerleader for the company and also understand what's going on uh, in that um, exceeding that number is makes it really tricky and difficult. I would like to hook into that point uh, now and then. So, I mean, what you mentioned, also in private rounds, we have the seed funds, we have business angels, we have seed funds. Uh, very often also pharma companies now have initiatives where they really support with grants, uh, early stage development, or also on the university level. We have the Series A and B funds, and on, then we have the crossover funds who are doing pre-IPO rounds, IPO rounds, and then we have the public market. And today, everybody is trained by social media anyways in drug development and understands everything. So it's really a wonderful world. But going back to 1999, uh, I always thought when I got to know you that you founded Taros and run that company very successfully. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion where you mentioned that you're flying to Asia, to India. And I always thought you're going there on holiday. And uh, then you said, no, that's not. Uh, I also founded a company in Asia. Uh, what motivated you besides the... Uh, let's say the tremendous work of founding a company in Nowestland already in Germany in the 90s, that you also then uh, exp uh, do it again at the same, uh, this, uh, almost at the same time, I think, if I'm, I'm, I'm not wrong from my research, um, also in Asia. What, what was your motivation to do that? Well, it was a few years later after I moved from Marburg to, to Dortmund the same time. What the motivation was, was as follows. When I studied, again, it goes all back to my studies. When I studied in, in the US, I had a lot of colleagues from China and in India. Basically, 50% of the PhDs were um, Chinese and Indians, 25% the rest of the world, and 25% American colleagues. And uh, my colleagues were extremely smart, extremely talented chemists. And some of them stayed, some of them went back. And uh, at the same time, I started traveling uh, to India and I identified that uh, there were a few hubs back then. Generics companies started developing and there were a few hubs that were focusing on chemistry. And um, I thought that could be a huge advantage to some of my customers to, uh, to start uh, business activities there, where in some projects they would have a, a cost advantage. So that's how the, the idea came about again. Simple following a certain logic, taking the knowledge that I had uh, collected in, in, in my PhD and then saying, what can we do in order to be even more competitive? When companies started outsourcing, one of the main aspects was, was uh, pricing. So that was the initial thought. And that's how I went about going to Asia. And then what we started doing is also advising our partners, hey, this does not make sense to do it here. It's very labor intensive. Uh, it's, it's not very IP critical. Why don't you do it abroad? And uh, we were doing then a part here and a part we were doing with our partner in, in, in India. So that's how I came about it. And then I was there very regularly. I, I traveled back and forth. And... Um, so then I got to know the, 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 the country better, the business acumens better. And so we have become quite an important aspect for, for companies when they want to outsource. 
again, in 2004, Asia was not on the, on the map for outsourcing. Five, six years later, it became very big business. Today, we have very big competitors. And some of my biggest competitors are, are out in Asia today. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can still focus and we can still ask for higher prices because we have certain advantages that the, the people like to, to, uh, to use here in Europe. That means speed, creativity, and uh, protection of IP rights, a guaranteed protection of, let's say, much higher guarantee than uh, you can have in Asia due to the fluctuation within the staff. And so once again, it was a certain foresight that, that I, I had seen that the, the world would get simply more global to, to quote, uh, uh, Michael Friedman. The world is flat and it had become very flat for me when I came from the US to Germany. Traveling became much easier. And over the years, what I saw is really the world became flat. It was clear to me that the people who are good in the US, they will go back into their country and they will start exactly the same ideas that they saw in in the US and some stayed in the US and some went back. And that's how the world actually at the end also developed further. Let's stay a little bit uh, at your flat earth in communication and management uh, theory. Uh, and expand a little bit on that to give uh, young entrepreneurs a little bit of insight how management was 20 years ago. Because I think uh, today it's very convenient. I mean, uh, I'm here in Vienna and I guess you are um, in north, the northern part of Germany. Let's call it that Dortmund, yeah. from the Austrian perspective, um, without digging too deep into geography of Germany. <laughs> so, um And we can have a video call quite simply. So uh, it's stable. We are connected. Uh, we have cameras. We can uh, look at each other, see also the uh, nonverbal communication cues. And if this new term that uh, is becoming popular right now, the metaverse, uh, really takes off in a f- couple of months or years, then probably we sit on a holodeck like we see at uh, uh, Star Trek so that we can really work together and collaborate uh, without having to travel. Uh, looking back 20 years, uh, how was the world of management back then? How did you run two companies? Uh, very different, very different. I mean, back then, uh, internet barely came about. Telephone was extremely expensive. Internet mm. telephony did not exist. Forget video telephony. Uh, it, was, it was very, very, very difficult. It was a lot of traveling. Um, as I said, thank God there was email. So email was, was back then just about picking up. So it was a big advantage. Otherwise, it was uh, lots of calls, very high phone bills, faxes. Um, yeah, it was sometimes thinking. It was a different world. It was much more involved. But the difference was when you were out, you were out. You could switch off. Today, when you're out, you're always on your job. That's true. Uh, That's true. When you were on a business trip, it was the one hour of your meeting and maybe one hour uh, taking your notes and that was it. Today, you have a one hour business meeting, you take your notes and then you check your emails and <laughs> do all the rest. <laughs> That's true. very different, very different. And uh, also the world also has changed. Even India has changed. Traveling has changed. Not only communication, but also the access to certain places has changed. Today, if you go to India and you want to travel to any small city, you will have a flight there. Back then, you had three, four big hubs. <laughs> and then you would take the bus or a, a, a taxi, which would take forever through some dusty roads. 
to get from place A to place B. And uh, today it's much more convenient. Today, wherever you travel, you can find, at least in India, that, that is the case, but the same also applies to China. You have the same level of communication tools, infrastructure, so hotels, uh, food, all this plays a big role when, 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 when you manage in two, in two different continents. And all that is, uh, is today much easier than it was 20 years ago. I agree to that. Uh, in 2003, four, five, I was working for an Austrian company who is uh, in the sugar business. It's a subsidiary of Südzucker. I think Südzucker is uh, probably a well-known term in, in Germany. It's a sugar-producing company. And by this time, um, the company did a lot of uh, M&A activities in Eastern Europe and uh, started building a global division. So as you mentioned, being out of the office meant there is no communication with the office. So a week of travel, there were internet took off, but at least it, uh, email took off, but at least it needed an internet connection. And it was not as convenient as today where Wi-Fi is available everywhere or, uh, having global access to internet with uh, a local provider is basically, let's say compared to 2004, it's at zero expenses. So this was not possible back then. Yes. Yes. How how do you let's say a little bit uh, differences and similarities between uh, India and uh, the European culture? How did you perceive back then the differences between India and Germany culture-wise? Back then, the differences were were very big, were very big for uh, for us to understand the Indian culture and mentality, but also for them to understand us and. Um, in India, the personal aspect was, for the longest time, extremely important. In Germany, it is about the business. When I go somewhere, it is about the business. And I talk very little private. If possible, nothing at all, if I can choose, right? Whereas in, in India, it was completely the opposite. For the first one hour, you would talk about family, your vacation, your kids. So you bond. And uh, the business gets them as a, as a sidekick in, into the focus. But it was not the first point of, of discussion. When I used to meet partners or even today, you meet and you talk business right away. You don't talk uh, much about, oh, how are your kids? To, to an unknown, to a person that you have never met, you'll never talk family. In India, it was completely the opposite. And so it was the first the personal touch. And But the whole business acumen is still very personal in India, but it has been influenced strongly by the Anglo-Saxon mentality. Mm -hmm. So the, the way uh, meetings are being conducted, punctuality and so on. In the past, punctuality, simply because of the infrastructure of India, was not possible. Plus minus one hour was, was okay, was, was no big deal. Um, people wait in the office and if it is an hour later, it's an hour later. When I would go five minutes late, I would start sweating, right? In the, into a meeting and there they thought very relaxed, but that all has changed. I mean, there has been tremendous changes in the, in the business acumen and the business culture in India. How is, and, uh, yeah. how is it, to, how is it today? Uh, there was, um, a couple of years ago, there was this theory that, uh, ultimately, when uh, 
access to the world still evolves and gets better, for example, with the Hyperloop concept of Tesla. Or maybe someday we also have, besides the holodeck, also the possibility to beam anywhere in the world. Um, the theory that comes with that is uh, that we will end up in a global culture that uh, has no uniqueness anymore. So it's quite... Uh, similar everywhere in the world. So it's, it doesn't matter if you're in the United States, in India or in China, we will have one culture. Did you perceive a move towards that end point over the last 20 years when you compare uh, India and uh, the Anglo-American um, business culture? You know, to be honest, I think to get to this unique global culture will take a very, very, mm -hmm. very long time. Because despite the Anglo-Saxon influence, uh, India has maintained a lot of its cultural aspects. They're very proud of it. They maintain it. And um, the, 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 the mindset will not change. If you even look at Europe, we are trying to, to form, forget the global aspect. We are trying to form a unified Europe. But the beauty and the uniqueness is if I go across the border to To, to Belgium, which is just one hour drive for me here, already I have a different language, I have a different structure, I have a different attitude. Um, a part of the uniqueness of humans is that we are in a way diverse. I think our moral compass might, might, might become uh, similar. Uh, what is acceptable in a society? What is respect? What is Uh, respect for women, respect for uh, different people who are different, different religion, different orientations. That will become, I think, unique, that we are much more liberal. But I, I don't see that we will get uh, one global culture where there will be no difference. Simply, we are, the, the pockets are too different. As Anglo-Saxon as India is, uh, as colorful as it, that, that is, if you go to India, India is not... People conceive India as a state, but if you're in India and you spend some time in India, it is as diverse, if not more, more diverse than Europe. Uh, they have 22 official languages. We are talking languages with their own script, not accents, not, uh, um, uh, let's say, similar languages like uh, uh, the, the Italian, Spanish, and French that have a similar root, right? Uh, no, they're completely different scripts, different roots of the languages. So, and they have not unified, despite being occupied by the Brits for so long. I don't see it. I don't see it. At least not in my lifetime. I don't know what happens after my lifetime. But what I see is a unification of, of a moral compass, of, uh, yeah, of, uh, of certain aspects that make us easier to live together. There are certain aspects in our life, uh, respect for each other, respect for difference. That's the, what I was looking for. The respect for difference, for being different is evolving in more and more states. And uh, unfortunately, we see some states where, as we see it in the recent activities in Afghanistan, that goes back, but mm -hmm. it's represented by a minority. And when the people get the choice again, they will opt for respect for difference. And I'm pretty positive about that. And that's what I see in all my travel activities. People will not become one. They will become one in their values and their respect for others, but they all will differentiate themselves in their cultural aspects, which is nice and unique, you know, because when you go somewhere and somebody has a different 
culture or they have a different habit, it's nice to watch. It's, it's very refreshing. Some things you take with you and then you go back to your own country. And today we have yoga, we have meditation that we uh, took uh, with us from India. We incorporate into our life culture, but we didn't change our life culture and vice versa. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. That's that's um, a great perspective, I think, to take uh, what's useful with you and um, integrate it in your own life uh, without losing your uniqueness and uh, still keeping your own values, but with a respect for the differences of other, other cultures. I think this would be a great endpoint to achieve uh, as a human race um, without having wars to fight uh, over differences and uh, staying respectful, which also needs to set boundaries. Um, let's go a little bit back from the cultural aspects um, and expand on the business aspects of the industry. We were talking about how the industry evolved and developed here in Europe uh, from basically an empty field with just uh, not an empty field because they've got these big pharma corporations. But now when I look at the industry in 2021, it's much more colorful. So to stay in this uh cultural discussion we had a couple of minutes ago. We have a lot of service providers. We have a lot of, let's call them gold diggers. These are these uh, specialized companies that uh, hold the IP run by the experts in a field like, for example, like CRISPR Therapeutics in the United States or BioNTech here when we look at mRNA technology. Um, how did the industry evolve in India in the last 20 years? Tremendously. There have also been tremendous changes over there. What we see that, uh, what I saw is that a lot, what we outsource, what you have to see 20 years ago, we had a lot of steel chemical production facilities, a lot of pharmaceutical production facilities. And we started outsourcing these activities. And a lot of these outsourcing activities were picked up by the uh, by 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 the indian industry and they have grown in a tremendous way over there um, i mentioned chemistry services they also set up large uh, entities for for service providers over there um, here in europe we started going more and more into creating ip going more into innovation uh, india was very busy over the last few years creating a lot of these production facilities together with China. But on the other hand, in the field, in the IT field, they developed in the creative uh, area. That means a lot of the programmers, a lot of the uh, IT experts that had the creative mindset, they stayed in India. They didn't travel to the US. The US companies set up shop there. They set up infrastructure there. So they stayed there. But in the pharmaceutical field, what I saw was that they stayed with the production facilities. 
And only now they start going into the uh, innovative drug space. And I still think there's quite a path for them to go to go to really into the cutting edge technology that we saw here. You mentioned two areas of CRISPR or uh, mRNA technology in the field of vaccination. I think there India will still is, is, is still has a way to go to get into the field. Will they do it ultimately? I'm pretty positive because again, the world is getting flat. Um, the the margins in their field in the production is still very good for the for uh, in in the Indian setup. It's as good as the pharmaceutical industries have here in the drug discovery field. But as their margins will go will grow lower, they will be also look into innovative drug space. And um, as I said, they picked up where we left uh, technologies open for them to pick up. But I think it's just a question of time when they will start getting into innovation. Yeah, I think even you mentioned the digital space that a lot of uh, uh, tech, uh, internet tech, uh, basically, I think evolved in India or uh, is, is taken up in India. And uh, what I see in our industry, I think we are on the onset of marrying uh, artificial intelligence and, uh, and technologies alike with uh, drug development. So maybe there is a, a huge space and huge opportunity, huge opportunity for India. How do you see that? I think there is a huge space there. Uh, maybe a very, very interesting uh, development that I saw in India, which was also quite interesting for me. Uh, a lot of companies in the US, they outsourced a lot to India because it was cheaper, it was easier to do, there was more manpower and so on. So especially back then when there was the, the year 2000 scare, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the IT scare. And you had companies like Tata uh, Consulting Services, which is a huge IT uh, service provider. And what we see now is that these companies like uh, Tata Consultancy Services have started opening research sites in the US. So where the US companies were opening research sites in India, we see now that the world has taken one round. And what I found extremely interesting that exactly uh, Tata had invested into a building, into a new chemistry building in San Diego, where in the past I would see buildings being financed by Western countries and getting the name by, by some uh, Western corporations. Now it's sometimes the other way around. And that shows you how the cycle is, is closing. And I think similar approaches will happen over the next uh, decades, even in the pharma space. Exactly the same thing that we will see the, the circle, the cycle going once around. No, I absolutely agree with what you say. I think this uh, dichotomy that it must be either or, uh, we loosen up. A lot of things can uh, exist at the same time. And it's not talking so much at comp over competition anymore. It's like, I like this book from Simon Sinek, uh, The Infinite Game. And where he mentioned that uh, we must focus on solutions and start collaborating instead of uh, thinking how we can win over a competition. And uh, I think this mindset probably is much more present already uh, historically in India and in China. Uh, than it is in Europe and the United States. But I think this is something that probably we Europeans and also people in the United States should pick up to think in coexistence uh, rather than competition. How do you see that? 
Yes, I see it very much so. I, I had taken before our talk a note and uh, I was thinking what's the biggest difference between the way problems are being approached in Europe and how problems are being approached in India. There are two completely different mm -hmm. approaches. In Europe or in the Western world, our first reaction when we run into a problem, it's we are paralyzed. And we start thinking, oh God, a problem, shock, how are we going to approach it? In India, they run into a problem and then they think, oh, an issue I have to solve. One more issue that I have to solve. And the small problems, they solve very often, very pragmatic. That means they solve the small issues and then the big issues, they deal with it. It's just, okay, I deal with it. Here, if it is a big or a small issue, we all first get paralyzed. It's a very interesting phenomenon for me. Nobody there gets too worked up over an issue, a pro a, 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 over a problem. Let me just, okay, it's an issue, I'll solve it, just a question of time. Really, that's the issue, and the, the, the attitude. Here, it's always, oh, we have a problem. And then when you look at it and you think, hey, uh, we can solve it quite quickly. Yes, but do we stick to all the rules? Do we stick to all the... Uh, uh, did we dot every I and did we cross every T? And uh, we get stuck there very often. And that's why we think we will, at the end of the day, equalize. What will happen is because we are sl slowing down in solving our problems and they're speeding up. On the other hand, um, that freedom to operate uh, that is there also gets over time more and more and more restrictive. Let's see, we see even uh, in China where they were very liberal for what uh, the environment was concerned, even there, they're putting a lot of laws in place. They're putting a lot of restrictions in place. I think when you come into a certain maturity space or in maturity area, we start equalizing. So um, I think, as I said, over time, the the wealth over the world will will get more distributed the way we approach a problem gets distributed but culturally i think there where we're going to get into culture again here we're very uh when there is a problem very very uh, uh hampered we see it as, mm -hmm. as as a huge issue it's different over there while you were speaking um i was thinking about a quote that is attributed to buddha uh which is also i think uh, connects to india and um it's um a little bit uh let's say if i can bring it together it's uh that uh he said all people in their lifetime have uh at any time in their life they have always 50 problems and only a few people have uh one problem more uh, They wish to have no problem at all. So maybe this explains the why Europeans are paralyzed or German and Austrians are paralyzed when they run into a problem because they say, ah, oh, I don't want to have problems. And uh, probably it also symbolizes the, the Asian thinking that, okay, there will always be problems. So let's solve one after the other and just let some sit and don't do anything with that. Yeah, there is, there is, okay. there is a problem. It's just a question of time till we solve it, but it'll be solved at the end of the day. Well, that so. also has been a part of entrepreneurship mm. for me. As an entrepreneur, um, all you do is at the end of the day, 
you solve one problem after the next, if you, uh, one issue after the next, not really a problem. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because you can run always into new issues. I was a chemist. Today, I'm, I'm, uh, I have to understand the spreadsheet. I have to understand marketing. I have to understand business development sales. I have to understand global cultural differences. And um, they can create issues along your way. And people, when they come to me, they don't come to me with the success stories. Very often, they come to me when they have an issue and they don't know how to continue with that issue. Per definition, that's the description of my job. So if you don't learn as an entrepreneur to really do that, you will not be successful as an entrepreneur. And that's where I picked up the spirit a little bit over there, where I said a problem is not a problem, it's just an issue to be solved. Yeah, I think uh, what you mentioned is uh, key to success for anybody who wants to become an entrepreneur, um, this, this acceptance of problems, because it's the job of an entrepreneur to solve problems and find solutions. And it never ends. It's uh, also a hook point to the book of Simon Sinek, this uh, infinite game. I think I have it here. Let me just look higher. The playing cards. I'm very recommendable to read. It's this one. Mm-hmm. Um where he also says, I mean, entrepreneurship and running businesses is an endless game. It never ends. It starts and then you just do it every day. And it just needs to laugh to solve problems, manage people. And every day there will be something new and exciting and no, they will be the same. Was it also for you in your journey that way? Yes, exactly <laughs> that way. I have a little anecdote to that. Um, when, when, as an entrepreneur, you spend a lot of time in your, in your job. And um, you always have issues to solve. And um, my wife at one point told me, well, uh, when will you have more time? When will you do this? When will you do that? And I would say, oh, when I reach this aspect, then I will have time for this, that, and the other. After a few years, I was saying, oh, when I do this, then I will have more time. Then she turned around one day and said, do me a favor. Just don't promise me anymore. (laughs) that you will have more time that will not happen as an entrepreneur you do things because you do it out of passion i think this is what helps i think the 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 core issue is you do it out of passion if you don't do something with passion you're not good at it then it is better go take a job or uh, everything you have to find your space where you find your passion and then you're good at what you do yeah. I think it's like that as an artist, as a musician, as a, whatever job you have. And in today's world, we have the luxury to choose. You know, I don't understand the people who really are frustrated in their job. Unlike yeah. if there was a time and age, it's now that people can choose. Either I could go today and work in a big company. People are looking for qualified people. They're looking for, for good people. There's no reason to be in a job where you're unhappy. And uh, Entrepreneurship is about passion. Yeah, a certain logic and a certain passion. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's uh, very well put. Um, it's about passion and loving the process of solving problems and managing people. And then it's a habit. Just do it every day. And you really love. I also agree. I mean, the world today is, um, is a world of endless opportunities. When I look at the novel business models that arise, I mean, basically everybody has the possibility today to become a solopreneur. So 
medium, for example, is uh, paying money for writings. It's just people just need to sit down and write. And when other people read that, uh, automatically the algorithm creates cash flows. Or YouTube, for example, it's a wonderful place for people who like video to just start with nothing and create the audience. Back in the 90s, it was uh, finish your school, get a job, and uh, there were not so much opportunities. So I think this uh, world is moving to a better place. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I was involved in the European Lead Factory, mm -hmm. which was a, a, a consortium, a public-private consortium funded by the EU. It was the largest drug discovery uh, uh, consortium uh, funded by the EU. It was for transitional work from academia to the pharmaceutical industry. And there I had the luck to meet people who are passionate about being in academia, people who are passionate about being in the industry, and also other uh, entrepreneurs like me. It was 30 partners. I was in the project executive. I had helped set the whole thing up. And there you saw what passion can move. We had there a consortium of 30 partners, we had the funds from the EU, but within that consortium, I could not tell anybody what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Either they were self-motivated to participate, or uh, I could try to convince them, but I had no means like in a company where I have means to say, you have to do this, and I, I, I can ask people in a strong way, or if they don't like it, I can, in the worst case scenario, let them go. In a consortium, you can't do that. And that's where I saw what passion makes. In this consortium, there were, as I said, so many partners. At the end, we had 150 FTEs. And I saw what can be created. Within a very short period of time, we had an operation that is a drug discovery screening operation uh, with 150 FTEs set up. And we reached all the goals that we had. And you have to imagine it was not a a, a for-profit approach. It was really an approach where we did the screening operations and all the uh, the, the the screening and the, the data was free of charge to the biotech industry or to the academic institutions that put in their, 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 their target to be screened. But to set that up, you needed the, the passion of the people and the voluntarism of the people. And there I got to see a glimpse of the world of academia, what drives them, what makes them successful, but also in the pharmaceutical industry, which people are successful, who enjoys what they're doing, what can they contribute. And there I saw the difference between people with passion at what they do. And very often passion comes with success. People are extremely successful when they're passionate. And you see people who just do a job, which is also okay. But that's, I think, sometimes the difference between success and uh, And uh, yeah, maybe a bit less successful. And I think from a social development point of view, we today have the luxury to find out uh, what our passion is and start uh, working in that direction. I think it was different 50 or 60 years ago yes. in, in Europe, where out of necessity, people just uh, needed to do what needs to be done to have uh, uh, houses and uh, shelter and food to eat was the time after World War II. So today is really, I mean, it's, it's a world of abundance, in my opinion, and uh, people just need to pick up the opportunities. It reminded me of a, of a talk I had uh, in the 90s when I was a member of a fraternity where uh, what you said, passion, 
where one one evening I complained that um, it's so unfair uh, running a team at the fraternity because uh, people are not motivated when I don't pay them. So uh, an elderly person heard that, I think he was in the 60s, um, and he walked over to me and said, Christian, you see it wrong. <laughs> it's not the right point of view that you have. Uh, it's your job as a leader. Uh, to look at the people and find out what they are passionate about and uh, what motivates them and then give them jobs accordingly. It doesn't really make a difference uh, whether you pay them or not. If there is no passion and people don't like what they are doing, uh, regardless uh, the size of the salary, uh, they won't do the job. And uh, it's your responsibility to make sure that the right person gets the right job. So it was um, also a very, very nice anecdote. I can't agree more to that. That's also the job that I see in my company. I I have to motivate the people. The people are only as good as, as much as I motivate them. And I have to discover their talents. When people come in, very often I get job starters in my company. Most of them chemists. and um, But not everybody wants to be a bench chemist. So you have to see, okay, some people are more communicative, so they are going to business development, but you have to discover and you have to offer them to lead them to, towards that. Sometimes people themselves don't even know where their talent lies or what makes them really happy. And when you see, as I said, uh, he's not an introvert, he's more communicative, and you see him on the bench, he's not so happy. You take him, you make him an offering, you, you ask him, and you ask them to help out. So you lead them towards it and then they're very happy and very successful. And I think that's a part also of a entrepreneur. A part was for me also to identify the people, to be a good manager, identify the talent, and then also coach the people to a certain degree. That's another aspect. One was to motivate, but the other thing is also to coach because when somebody is a new job, um, he's first overwhelmed. And then you have to make sure that that you say, hey, it's okay. It's normal that at the beginning you're overwhelmed. But once you enjoy it, you fly in it. You know, you're not successful right when you start just because you're passionate. You're not successful from day one. So uh, I can't agree more with the, with the old gentleman that, that gave you that advice. <laughs> I think what you say is key to success that uh, very often is overlooked uh, when um, uh, people found companies. It's a team play. So it's uh, running a company is not a, a one man or a one person or a one woman show. Uh, it's putting a team together. Every company is a team play. And uh, I think this is also key for, it doesn't matter which kind of company. The minute people think about putting something into a business, they must be aware of uh, you're entering the world of playing with a team. I fully agree. I fully agree. If uh, people ask me very often today, what would you do different, differently? And I would say very clearly, today I would start with a team. Mm. I started the company by myself, but I asked two, three people when I finished my studies. And back then, nobody was crazy enough to start his own company. Everybody went to the pharmaceutical industry to work and all took a safe job. Today, the young people have the opportunity to find some partner who's interested. Today, I would say to everybody, look for other passionate people in complementary fields. If you're a chemist, look for an accountant or look for an MBA or look for, for a marketing expert. Look for somebody who's complementary in order to be able also to have somebody to share ideas and to share problems. I think mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. It's very important to work as a team. 
Um, what you said um, back in the 90s when I got my master's degree in economy, the success metrics of uh, companies were free. It was uh, growth of revenue, growth in profits. And uh, then the third one was headcount. And um, what you said when you started to to try to find a team back in the 90s, it reminded me of a story I experienced in 2006 when I decided to join a, a spin-out from Novartis and uh, start working with that because this, let's call it gold digging pharma uh, uh, life science companies that uh, are run by highly specialized teams to have uh, one speciality in their balance sheet. It's uh, they accumulate losses. So, for example, a company like BioNTech, uh, I think they must have hundreds of millions of losses by the time they brought their first mRNA vaccine to the market. And when you look at this balance sheet, it's, it contradicts what people teach at the university level. And the first response was when I informed my circle of friends uh, back in 2006 that I joined the life science industry, the glorious life science industry of drug discovery. I say, are you nuts? Uh, this cannot work. They don't have any revenues. They just accumulate losses. So it's a very, very unique uh, uh, business model. How do you perceive the different life science business model when we talk about uh, drug discovery? I think today it's the same way. They are the service providers. Mm -hmm. uh, like we are, we are service provider. Today you have different mixed models. You have the service providers, which over the years, like uh, Levi Strauss, to pick up your example from the beginning, have really increased tremendous in value. Just for example, um, when I started my company, nobody wanted to invest money in it to buy a share. That's why I went for a loan. Um, today, most of my competitors have been bought up by private equity company for unbelievable uh, valuation. And um, that shows you the understanding today of the value of companies generating revenues. So even that in the life science industry, that's also there. On the other hand, the cycle of drug discovery is multiple years. Mm -hmm. So when you hit uh, the gold mine, you hit it big. Let's say BioNTech, they hit the gold mine, they hit it big. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And it's like that for other, other companies too. So for the investors, it pays out if they do 10 investments, if one, one makes it, they're, 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 they're set. Uh, but that's necessary because these projects otherwise would have been done in the pharmaceutical industry. And it was the same thing. You start 10 projects, nine fail. And that's why pharma research is so expensive. That's why pharma drugs are extremely expensive because there are huge risks associated with it. And to bring a, a drug to the market, the life cycle of from early drug discovery to the drug, it takes between 12 and 15 years. So, um, then you have to have a a ten year um, yeah six to ten year planning of losses in order to be able to uh, to hit the market. And what is a yearly profit? Yearly profit is very short short sighted. Innovation takes time. Cycles of innovation take time. Today we live in IT. It is much shorter cycles, but in drug discovery, it just is a bigger a bigger cycle. But uh, it doesn't mean that it is a bad investment. I recently, many people have accepted it. It's very mm -hmm. common for investors, but also for people to work in life science companies. I agree to what you say. Uh, recently, um, I read uh, a 
uh, an article, I think it was in Nature Bio Biotechnology, um, that uh, analyzed the the time span that was needed to bring an mRNA vaccine to the market. So I completely agree to what you say. It's 10 to 15 years until it hits uh, the market when we are in development, not including the basic research. And I hope I get it right in my mind, but uh, I think the the first steps into that vaccine technology that ultimately led uh, in 2021 that the mRNA vaccine was put on the market, it already started in the 60s, uh, both I think nanoparticles and also the mRNA discovery stage. So we're talking about 30, 40 years of hard basic research work, which is not easy, which is very complex. Uh, and then uh, 10 to 15 years seems to be the last mile. And uh, then comes the rollout on the market. And uh, one of the studies that I read uh, that analyzes the money needed to bring one therapeutic or one vaccine to the market uh, comes up with figures of one to three billion. So every business plan that we start writing starts with in drug development or vaccine development starts with this one to three billion mark somewhere in the plan. And uh, back in the 90s, there was no investment industry here in Europe. So it's uh, quite interesting how things evolve. When, yes, because, because the pharmaceutical industry was doing it themselves. Yeah. They were bearing it. Yeah, I agree to that. When... Uh, you were talking about the funds and that they already start uh, investing in, uh, in, in also in service providers. I mean, my advice 10 years ago always was when people ask me, where can I invest in, in therapeutics? Just, uh, I said, just don't do that. <laughs> Most of that is private. And uh, if you don't have at least 100 million to allocate in companies uh, because of this uh, success rate that you mentioned, nine out of 10 fail and uh, the one succeeds also funds need to be aware of that, that probably when they invest in 10 companies, one makes it, but uh, you just need one BioNTech to, to repay your investment. And uh, But the market changed. When I look today on the Nasdaq and also on European stock exchanges, very often service provider, uh, drug developers get listed very early, for example, or later Vertex Pharmaceutical, uh, for example, is listed on the Nasdaq. BioNTech is listed on the Nasdaq. Moderna is listed on the Nasdaq. Then we have a couple of uh, oncology companies like uh, CRISPR or Intelia, who are also listed on the Nasdaq, uh, but are still in development phases. Um, have you ever thought about taking your company public? Um the next stage from our company would be uh, basically private equity. Mm. For us, there is no market to go public because the entry cost of reporting, et cetera, et cetera, and the effort is simply too big. The difference is too big. So you have to have a certain maturity. In the past, you had uh, for smaller biotech companies in Germany, a market where you could uh, go to the... To, uh, to uh, collect smaller amounts of money. But today, the markets that are available in Germany, and that's why it has not crossed my, 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 my mind, is simply the entry ticket, just with the, with the documentation, et cetera, et cetera, is way too high. It's way too high. So all my partners or my competitors, uh, however you want to call them, they're all basically, or not all, but a large number has sold out to private equity companies or to companies that have, that are, uh, major service providers and are um, listed already. 
Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, being this the company, it's a, it's a different game. It's a different game when it comes yes. to managing analysts and uh, investors. The public market can be good, but it can also be very tricky. So it needs specialized expertise and definitely on the reporting side and communication side, uh, a lot of resources that uh, private companies don't need. So I think to just put it plant, they have worked in both uh, public and private environments. And the public environment is just a machine, I would say. It's just uh, also on the communication side. Everything must be, especially today, everything must be timed on the minute. There is no possibility to delay, any, delay anything. Just imagine, I mean, quarterly reports, you can't delay that. So it's, uh, would be, it's, it's different. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the future of our industry. Um, when I talked with people, and this was also the, the, the beginning of this life science get together networking community. When I talked with politicians and investors, uh, in 2017 or 16 about investments in life science, I pretty much was empty. Um, most of the funds and professional investors uh, like investing in revenue-bearing companies and profitable companies. Uh, don't take a lot of high-risk games like uh, nine out of uh, you have a success chance of uh, five to ten percent, um, and also prefer industries like real estate, for example. Um, then in 2017, I compared uh, the venture capital that runs into the development from conceptual uh, basic research ideas into products. And I found that China and the United States allocate four to five times as much capital into that area than Europe does. So I was not sure if... Um, our community here in Europe was aware of that. So I decided to start a small initiative to start talking with politicians and just making them aware of the fact that uh, we lost the digital game here in Europe. So we don't have any Apple or Amazon. And we are on the verge of losing also the life science game because there is just more investment uh, left and right of Europe when we look at uh, at uh, uh, the landscape of the world. And... Uh, not much changed, honestly speaking, from 2017, 18, 19. And then came the pandemic and something amazing happened that a European company was so smart to start uh, developing a technology that basically saves the, get, saves the world uh, back in a time when nobody was interested in that. And since that moment that BioNTech basically uh, managed to get also meanwhile a full approval in the United States, I think more and more people here in Europe uh, and the United States and China are aware what this industry can do and how it can perform. And they always get more and more interest from, let's say, unusual parties that uh, want now to invest in life science and take the risk just for philanthropic reasons that they want to help to solve such health problems. Um, my question to you is, is this just my perception or do you think that the, the spirit and the spirit of collaboration and uh, investment and uh, starting opening uh, from unusual investors that have not invested in the life science industry so far to have a philanthropic approach, do you think that the spirit will remain and sustain and also push the European life science industry further in the future where more money is available to bring more technology to patients? It's difficult to say. What I think is you're absolutely right that uh, we are investing way too little. 
The sad part as a European, now I'm talking as a European, is that in Europe we have excellent creative minds. Great scientists. CureVac is just one, uh, CureVac and BioNTech. I mean, Mm -hmm. one should not forget that the the original idea of mRNA comes out of CureVac. Um, We have super creative minds in Europe. Excellent scientists. But we are incapable of valorizing it. We are putting any roadblock possible over the 10-year delay. Even in the IT industry, um, uh, voice over IP was was a German development by German scientists, but they couldn't get phone numbers allocated because of all the restrictions. Many inventions that we see are based on, on scientists that go abroad. Many Nobel Prize laureates in, in, in medicine come from Europe or in the sciences, but they're all in the US currently. Why is mm-hmm. that? And that's where it starts. And will it change just because BioNTech and CureVac were the original inventors of the vaccine? I hope, but I'm not certain because we are still too, how should I say, uh, too slow for changes. The world is cha- around us is changing extremely, extremely fast. In Europe, we love our comfort zone. And we hate to leave our comfort zone. And anything that's new is suspect. And uh, what I don't know, I'm not trying to taste. There's a German saying for that. And will it change because of one occurrence? I hope uh, the the industry or the, the political establishment will understand of the power that they have here in Europe within the academic community, within the biotech industry, within the creative minds, and that they will try to valorize it. It cannot be that we create here value and the valorization, speak the value out of it, the revenues out of it are being made abroad. Yes, we are here in Germany, the car industry is very big and so on, the chemical industry. But as you said, the, the, all the IT, KI, we have missed. Um, not because we didn't have the capabilities or because we didn't have the research infrastructures. It was just simply because we were too careful in accepting changes. Um, Would we have the innovators to have Google or Apple or whatever you want to name it? Yes, we would have them. Would it ever be possible to have such a success story in Europe? Hardly, because there are too many obstacles. I wish and I hope that it'll change, but let's wait and see. I wish, I wish. It's it's quite an interesting development when I think back uh, again to the 90s when you started your company. Um, basically, there was a lot of tech coming out of Europe. So it's uh, auto, you mentioned automotive industry, I think Daimler, Volkswagen, BMW, um, also the French car makers and the, the Scandinavian car makers and the British car makers were very innovative or are still very innovative in the field. They are operating in the traditional uh, oil-based vehicles, they call it that way. Uh, then we had the mobile industry, I think also was very innovative. I mean, Nokia, uh, Ericsson. Uh, Siemens, for example, I remember one of my first models was from Siemens. And not only were they innovative in technology, they also were innovative in business models because they, they realized very quickly, uh, 
here in Austria, for example, uh, got a lot of mobiles in the 90s for free. So they just say, okay, let's put people on the network. And once they're on the network, we can then charge them for services. So it was a, a shift in the uh, thinking of you need to buy the mobile and uh, that's it. Uh, to you get the device for free and uh, then you produce revenues for the company. It was very innovative in the 90s. And uh, then somehow, I think uh, with... Uh, the new decade and the new century, things slowly started to change. And I think Europe lost, lost the edge. Uh, when I look at Europe today, I mean, uh, Apple invented the smartphone and somehow eliminated all the mobile industry that was in Europe. So something we missed when we look at Google search engines, we have the smart minds. I mean, we had a lot of projects also set up here in Europe, but somehow we, we did not really... Uh, wants to evolve and develop that and started buying uh, services from the United States. So all our data, in my opinion, is managed out of the United States currently, all European, uh, also cloud services. I mean, uh, the big cloud services still, I mean, it's Amazon, AWS, um, Microsoft, I think Azure, it's the, it's the name of the Microsoft cloud. Um, how do we have a European project uh, that works? I don't think so. And uh, similar to life science, I mean, when I think at how I can evolve and develop life science companies, it's, it's pretty simple. We have great technology here in Europe. Uh, we have the, in my opinion, we have the world's best scientists in basic research here in Europe. Um, historically, because the universities are quite old, I mean, the oldest universities are here in Europe. So historically, there is a scientific culture uh, deeply ingrained in this continent. Um, we also have, uh, Tremendous public funding support for the early stages. And um, when I think um, at the beginning of a company, we need a few hundred thousand euros that can also be brought up by people from the industry, which usually when they found companies, they are in their 50s anyways, uh, had some income over time and accumulated some wealth over time. So this can be done with business angels. But once the company is founded and goes into preclinical development, there is still hardly any investment community here in Europe. I think we have more opportunities still than investment capital available. And when I talk to investors also on the podcast, they acknowledge that fact and say it's a very investor-friendly environment. So uh, entrepreneurs should not be too bold in negotiating valuations because there are more opportunities on the market than capital. Um, thinking about taking a company public uh, in life science is next to impossible in Europe for just one fact, we don't have these IPO investors here. I mean, they are all in Boston and San Francisco. And I don't remember the book or the podcast where I heard that. Um, one factor that people attribute to the, the rise of Silicon Valley uh, back, I think, in the 70s and 80s uh, was basically coming for the governments, but they said uh, many companies back in the 80s were just, uh, their first customer was some governmental uh, um, organization that just bought local products. And uh, I think this is probably a part that's missing. Uh, how do you see that? You mean now that the public... Um side doesn't buy enough local products mm -hmm. or i mean in my opinion the first the first big company uh that uh got a governmental organization as the first customer was basically biontech with the with the with the pandemic oh <laughs> i know what you mean um i think it helps but it's not necessary what would mm -hmm. really help is if the despite there being so much capital uh, sometimes you have capital, but you don't have infrastructure. 
You don't always need the government to be the first, the first customer, but the government should be the, the provider of an infrastructure. Um, for example, why Taros was possible as a service provider was because I, I moved into an infrastructure. I grew in this infrastructure. I paid my rent. I didn't have to build a building. Mm. It's not my expertise, but I grew in my expertise. Uh, the public side has to provide the infrastructure, which lately it has slowed down. If you look in Europe, and uh, I think you're aware of this discussion, if you look for infrastructure for biotech companies, it has become a diaspora. All the, 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 the labs are occupied and there are no labs for new startup companies currently in the field of, of uh, biotechnology. So there the government should make it a a low entry point for them where people don't have to invest millions into a building, into a lab. And then later on, very often, the companies will find their, their, their customers. Um, and if you say, especially in the field of drug discovery, what one has to be careful about, most of the drugs, at the end of the day, the government buys through the health insurances. There, the health insurances should not put huge barriers in buying drugs because they're too expensive, but they have to be expensive because the cost, the entry costs are huge. But if we again put barriers in the price, in the pricing mm -hmm. of certain drugs, then we will also prevent the, 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 the drug discovery in the, in the medium run. So yes, there is a responsibility by the government, but I think it's not solemnly the government, but the government responsibility in my opinion would be for the early stage. The later stage, the, the, the companies have to find their way to, to find the customer. And you're right, BioNTech was the government, but indirectly, especially in the drug discovery field, it is uh, the insurances and the, and the governments. Mm. I'm not worried about later stage companies. I mean, once uh, they got the first license deal in with, um, when we look at the B2B business, um, it's quite easy or when they bring the first drug to the market themselves like Vertex or Moderna they, they are doing fine but I completely agree to what you say uh, it's the early stages that are critical where uh, a lot of things can or need to be fixed and uh, looking at one is infrastructure definitely so lab space is very scarce all over Europe um, as a company as an early stage company to should focus on moving the first pro, uh, first idea into product stage um, needing to raise funds to build their own uh, lab facilities, uh, just taking three to five years more. I think it, an Austrian company, Intercell, did that back in 2005, six, uh, four. They built their own their own facilities, so which is still there and uh, facilitated a lot of life science companies afterwards. Um, this is definitely one point. And to think also tax taxation, regulation, um, a lot of uh, capital is not available because of tax reasons. Um, it's not, I mean, there, there is no incentive to invest in a life science company, for example. Uh, this could be easily fixed with uh, making it tax deductible, for example. So even when someone provides uh, 40, 50,000 euros or 10,000 euros for a startup company, if they can uh, deduct it from their uh, tax payment, annual tax payment, it would be very beneficial for the startup scene. And I think this is all that happens in, in the United States. I heard in a podcast that they have these instruments, which is 401k or Roth IRA, where they not only can in, 
invest in listed companies without having to pay taxes. They also can invest in startup companies out of the instruments. And that provides a lot of capital. And in Austria, I mean, it's just the Austrian situation that I'm familiar. It's basically I need to earn a salary, uh, which is taxed. Uh, then from the remaining parts, uh, I have to save, which basically the interest rate is taxed. And or I invested in public companies, which uh, capital gains are taxed. And from the remaining part, I then when I have accumulated enough wealth, uh, that it makes sense to go early stage where the risk is very high, then I have to take it from money that already is taxed three or four times. And the United States provides a lot of capital with instruments uh, that are only taxed after money really is taken out by the person who runs the instrument. And I'm not, I'm not talking about foundations with billions of money in that. Uh, it's just person with $10,000. I mean, they can just uh, play that game without having to pay additional taxes. Uh, do you also see this, uh, this, this benefits in the, in the US system compared to, to the European system or do I miss something? Oh, I think it's the same. It's the same. I, I see it the same way. Basically, the U.S. has a lot of tax incentive systems for people to invest. If you invest here, as you said, out of a taxed income into a biotech company, in order to be able to tax deduct this, uh, especially in the life science industry where it takes 10 years to have revenues, or if the company goes belly up, I have to wait 10 years that I can activate that money as a loss. Mm -hmm. uh, so to, to have a tax deducted. And in the US, it's slightly different. They can activate the, the funds much earlier. Uh, in Germany now, they started giving the companies, the biotech companies themselves, once they have uh, profits, uh, tax breaks. But that's only once you, 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 you get to a, to a stage where you have um, profits. Now this year or last, no, I think no, last, last year, they introduced a, a tool where you get a tax return on investment, on research investment. But that only was introduced last year, which gives the company somewhat of a break, which is okay. But it's by, by far not as good as, let's say, in the UK or in Ireland or in the, in the US. I think there, Europe has still way to go in order to make it attractive for investors to put their money in especially considering that the path is extremely long in drug discovery. But as we see in the, in the uh, mRNA technology, the returns can be tremendously. Yeah, not only the returns, I think also the social impact. When I look at the big problems that we need to solve these days, I think one problem still is communication. Uh, that needs a lot of acceleration. And uh, I think the solutions are definitely coming out of the deep tech space, which is basically ideas that started out of universities. Um, then we have this uh, global warming discussion. It's, uh, I think, meanwhile, it's an accepted fact that uh, the human race influences uh, the climate change and uh, politicians and people are aware of uh wanting to change that. And I think it's also a challenge for deep tech. I mean, like uh, Tesla, Elon Musk says, uh, um, it's a problem that needs a lot of thinking and it's very complex. Um, then we have life science. I think longevity is still a hot topic and new viruses will also evolve and arise in the future and uh, also new bacteria probably and new health challenges will arise. And much more problems. And when I look uh, at the last 20 years, uh, 
and I ask myself the question, where did all the solutions to big problems come from? Uh, it definitely, in my opinion, were entrepreneurs who started companies. So let's look at Apple. Apple changed the, let's say, the way we can uh, access. Uh, I mean, it's the app economy that basically Steve Jobs invented. So we have this small device that holds our whole life. And this was unimaginable 30 years ago. When I look at Facebook, Facebook changed the way we communicated. In my opinion, it was Facebook who drove the expenses for global communication down to zero. So the internet uh, changed the way we are doing business. So for example, Amazon changed the way of e-commerce or commerce. Um, the first interviews I heard from Jeff Bezos was called the nerd of the Amazon. Um, Nobody thought that it's necessary to have the internet to sell something to people, but uh, he restructured the entire logistics globally. So all these inventions uh, got their push from entrepreneurs, from this rare breed. Also, when I look at the finance industry, for example, uh, Square, it's uh, like Wirecard, but the American version. Uh, is remodeling the way we are doing finance. And uh, I think also in the future, it's uh, entrepreneurship that changes the world. So um, I completely agree to what you say, that Europe needs to brush up the perception. I think uh, the culture has towards entrepreneurship must be more positive. I fully agree. I think uh, the ideas will come out of academia. Mm -hmm. For to change the world, but academia is extremely well financed. Even if I see it here on the spot, uh, the universities will get very quickly new buildings. But in this translational phase from the universities to the customer or to the industry or whatever you want to take, in the US, they accepted that Amazon was running billions and billions over years of losses that it is a part of the concept that it takes much longer. Big solutions require big investments and a longer time. The quick fix solution, everybody can do at the end of the day. So we have to accept in Europe that the solution will take much longer and that we have to invest in the future and that we have to take this academic brilliance that we have here in Europe and put a translational system, I want to call it, translational Uh, entrepreneurship that brings the, the, the product either to a, a big company or directly to the customer. To get back to the problems that we have to solve, I think as big as climate change is, one aspect that COVID made very clear to us, Mother Nature can be extremely brutal. With COVID, as sad as it what is going, as, as sad, as, as, sad as, it, as it is that we have lost so many lives, we still were in a way uh, lucky. Imagine now a COVID virus with the lethal rate of Ebola. Contagiousness of COVID, of the Delta variant, for example, and a lethal rate of 70 to 90%. And because we lived 70 years happily And we didn't have major diseases that we had to deal with. We thought, oh, we, we live in a bubble and healthcare, we just deal with the lifestyle diseases. And a lot of investments that we did was, I, I call them lifestyle diseases, obesity, blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. 
to the Ebola outbreak, I think that was the first, I think, red flag that we got, um, where we contained it very quickly. But on the other hand, as I said, combine these two viruses and we have disaster to come and we are not prepared for viruses. We have nothing. Another aspect that we are completely underestimating and it's as dangerous as climate change is uh, when you have antibiotic resistant bacteria, we're getting more of it and they're getting deadlier. And uh, we are heading towards a direction that is not healthy. We have to invest significant amounts to develop new bacteria, uh, not new bacteria, new antibiotics against these bacteria and also protect these antibiotics. Don't make them available for every chicken and every cow and every pig on this planet, yeah? Because at the end of the day, it has to be the last line of rescue because we saw in, 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 in every few, even if this every 100 years, every 200 years, we get a pandemic. It can be bacterial like the Black Plague, but it can be also viral, let's say like the, the Spanish flu or like now uh, COVID. We reacted faster. We have quicker mechanisms. But that is that we were lucky that we had mRNA technology that helped us uh, bring a drug quicker to the market. I think we have to be very careful. And just because a problem is not there, we should not ignore it. We have to anticipate, especially when it comes to health. And there, especially Europe, having great academic institutions, having so much investments in the healthcare industry, and not industry, but in the healthcare from in the academic world, it's their responsibility to make sure to translate it into a potential product, into a potential cure for custom for, for, for patients and, and at the end customers. But the patient should be in the focus, I think. It's very important. And um, the translational aspect, and not to let our resources go waste. Otherwise, it's a wasted investment. As great great as it is, if we don't valorize, if we don't create a drug for a patient, even if we don't have an issue, let's say like a viral infect was for 70 years not really a big issue. But all of a sudden, Ebola showed us that we have basically nothing. In, 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 in We were not prepared for it. As I said, we were lucky that it was not as contagious. But COVID made it very clear and we lost a lot of lives because we had simply nothing in the drawer against viruses. And um, there we have to, to, uh, to be smarter about it and anticipate issues. There are certain issues that the scientific community is warning. COVID is one thing, but antibacterial uh, resistance is another aspect that has to be looked at. It's a very interesting discussion about delayed gratification, and I agree to what you say. Um, and this is a, also a cultural aspect that I not fully understand so far. I mean, when I think back at my first training in economy in the 90s, um, the European teachers were always very proud of the long-term thinking and anticipating of long-term problems of the European society. And in their examples, they compared the Europe, European economy and thinking and mindset with the American mindset. And Back in the 90s, it was also late 80s, it was uh, the perception that Europe thinks long-term, 
and the United States because of their short-term profits, uh, they think in these four-year cycles. So it's very, very short-term and they have quarterly reports and stuff like that, which means that uh, they're looking more for short-term solution, which neglects the long-term effects. And somehow they changed over time. And I agree to what you say. I mean, uh, uh, vaccines and uh, also therapeutics or antibiotics against bacterial infections, they need just time to develop. It's not uh, a thing that uh, you can put online like an app in three months. <laughs> uh, we need to train now for, for an event that may or may not happen in the next 10 years, but Someday it will happen. It's it's for sure. And this was, uh, as I said, the warning call or the wake up call that Mother Nature sent us with with SARS-CoV-2. Said, okay, I give you a virus that's not very that's very contagious, but uh, compared to Ebola, uh, yes. less harmful. But maybe one day it really happens. I mean, Stephen King wrote it in his book, The Stand, exactly this scenario that uh, a virus spreads, which is as contagious as SARS-CoV-2, the Delta variant, and as deadly as Ebola. So the solutions we need to build now, and I think this is uh, for all problems that we have, these uh, this deep tech problems um, that need a lot of preparation before the actual problem really arises. And what I don't understand is why this European mindset changed. What's your perception? I think maybe the only constant thing is change. And we were looking at the US the way they were doing it. And we started adjusting to that mm. because it was a successful model, no doubt. But the U.S. recognized intrinsically what the weakness was in their success model. And while they were changing, speak with private equity funds and, and, and venture capital funds, providing capital that is long-term, uh, uh, that has a long-term view, in Europe, we unfortunately didn't uh, see that development. We're seeing it. But again, we are following. We are not uh, at the at the uh, uh, at the front forefront of of this development. I think once again we had a very great approach. But you can't only just look at ten years uh, uh, visions and ignore your your day to day business. But you cannot also just look at quarterly uh, spreadsheets uh, and and profits and ignore the long term. And it has to be a balance. And I think what we will see in Europe will bounce back as usual, uh, but we lost a little bit the edge there, and it's a normal a normal change. I think it's also kind of trends that we set. It's I think the economy has the same thing as the fashion industry. We have trends and we are following them, mm. and then we follow back and then we fall back into the same habits. I think it's cycles that we go through. Uh, that okay. I don't see too critical. It changed, but I think it'll change back. The question is how fast. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we have uh, also China joining. So I think in the past it was Europe, the United States. Now China is very strong and they've put out their plans in becoming the innovation leader uh, globally. Then we have India. I think India has a lot of uh, great future, similar to China, in my opinion. Um, Africa, I think also with, uh, I mean, cryptocurrencies, for example, is a technology that is, uh, that is aiming to um let's say uh how should i say it in a in a in a politically not incorrect way let me just think about it uh, that connects uh africa to the global capitalist system which basically overcomes the barrier of uh, a functioning 
having a functional banking system, which uh, unfortunately in some countries still today, I read that on the internet that 1.4 billion people still uh, don't have a bank account in the world. So without a bank account, they can't participate in the global innovation system. And um, cryptocurrencies like Cardano, for example, try to overcome that and uh, to to make these people also supported. So I, Africa also, I think, has a, has a great future to participate in that. So we have, uh, I think, instead of one or two blocks, we have uh, three to five blocks uh, doing research together. And this is a great future, in my opinion. Uh, which leads me to the final question, because I, mean, we, I think we can talk endlessly. We can, can add another two hours uh, effortlessly. Uh, but I also know that you have to run a company and probably also some some, some other meetings to do. Uh, let me ask you one final question. And uh, I mean, you are now running your company since 1999 and you also... Um, witnessed the shift and the change in economy, not only locally, but also globally. And you're also in touch with uh, young scientists, young entrepreneurs. And let's just imagine that one of these uh, scientists uh, approaches you and say, I mean, you built a nice company and you have expertise in Asia, in the United States and in Europe. Um, and this person asks you for just one advice in your scarce time and say, give, what is the most important advice that you can give me when I want to found the company? Pursue your dream. Very clear. Pursue your dream. That's the time to pursue it. Today is the time. Go for it. That is, that is, I think, the, the, best, the, the, the best advice at the moment that I can give them. If they can, if they can create something, it is in today's time. There are all the freedoms, the capital is available. Uh, the, the mindset of the people is there for entrepreneurship. They can build teams. They should pursue their dream because if they pursue their dream, they will excel in it. Dimitrios, this is uh, the best advice ever, <laughs> I think. And uh, it's uh, very clear. Pursue your dream and you will become successful in the end. Dimitrios, thank you very much for this nice conversation. I wish you and your family and your team all the best for your future. And I'm pretty sure that you will thrive and prosper also in the coming two decades. Christian, thank you for having me over at your podcast. It was really a pleasure talking to you and discussing uh, many, many, many global topics. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to your future podcasts, the different podcasts that you have posted. It's a great series. Thank you very much. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. <laughs>